Welcome to Corporately. I'm Glenn. I'm Denny. Today, we wrap up our discussion of project failure by bringing together the most impactful things to do to make projects succeed. This list applies to anyone on a project. It's not specifically aimed at any one participant. It applies to the entire project team. In previous episodes, we established that projects fail at epidemic rates and discuss the many potential causes of that failure. We also chatted about what signs to look for that indicate your project is failing. But now it's time to get specific about the behaviors and the actions that drive success. I would call this a battle-tested list. It's rooted in the many successes and failures we've both been a part of. Let's start with get the basics right. What is your experience with organizations and what they bring to project management basics? The thing that I think we need to keep in mind on this particular category is that there are as many different components within the organizations as there are organizations in the world. Everyone is a little different, and that's because it's made up of people. And the individual behaviors and personalities and skill sets and experience of the people in each organization are going to affect how things work. Strong personalities, maybe not so strong personalities, highly skilled technical people, not so skilled, all of those things factor into this. There's no single set of parameters that we can put around this. One has to understand their own organization both from the standpoint of who's in it. I need to understand that organization from the standpoint of of the history of it. What kinds of projects do they do? How many have they done? How experienced are they? How rigidly do they follow processes? All those sorts of things. This variability, I think, is the basis for why we have so many project failures. It's different every time, and it's different in every organization. That is true. Every organization I've worked for has a little different approach to this. But are there some standard basic things that you need to see in a project? Absolutely. One of the things that we talked about early on was we we defined a project, and that's a, a temporary endeavor that has a beginning and an end that has structure around it. In other words, definitions to do. Uh, we also discussed the phases. And these are generic components, an initiation phase, a planning phase, an execution phase, a control and monitor phase, and then a wrap-up. And those vary from place to place, in other words, organization to organization, but also from project to project in terms of how much emphasis you need to place in each one. So those are simply guidelines. They're not hard and fast in any way. And I think it's important that everyone remember that a project that you're working on today may be very dissimilar from the project you're working on tomorrow, both in terms of scope, complexity, in terms of the people that are on. You have to have a fair amount of flexibility in how you run these things from place to place. No, what I would add to that, I think you're right, variability and variety can be a strength, but there are those basic things. And I I just want to point out one thing that we've mentioned a couple of times, which is the project sponsor. Simply because I see this often goes wrong, there are a hundred ways to fail, only about three to succeed, and not doing the basics is a great way to fail even before you start. Not assigning a project sponsor is a great example. At times we've said, a project sponsor is only needed at certain times, but I know you would agree that doesn't mean their role isn't essential. You've pointed out repeatedly that project managers, for example, have no actual positional authority. It's the project sponsor that brings that authority. And I would also add that an engaged project sponsor sets the tone and the expectations of the team. 
good ones ask engaging questions, provide feedback, follow up on previous discussions, and even provide encouragement to the team. And of course, they can apply that pressure. And I think that's a key point, Glenn. It's the project sponsor is critical sometimes. And when you need that sponsor to step up, when you need that authority and you don't have it, that's when things will go off. So the project sponsor is not likely to be involved in the day-to-day activities, not going to be sitting in the stand-ups every morning, not going to be sitting in the technical design meeting. It's when a decision needs to be made. And it's it's when teams are no longer available. It's when there's a disagreement over priorities. It's need extra money or extra staff. If you don't have that strong leadership, you're going to get into trouble. So it's a critical step. That's one of the reasons it's one of the very first things that you will do when crafting your plan for your project. You need that strong leadership in place and totally committed to what you're about to undertake. Absolutely. Makes all the difference, especially on long projects that span many months. That role will come up at critical times and it makes all the difference. And I've had experience with this a number of times. I I don't think it happens on every project and I couldn't give you a percentage of the time that it does, but I've been in situations where we ran into a critical problem and the difference between success and falling on our face was the sponsor stepping in and saying, this is what's going to happen and this is what where you're going to get the money to do it and this is who is going to do it. So that strong leadership and that clear focus on what it is you're trying to accomplish when it's needed, it's critical. You also mentioned in the last episode, the need for a constant and repetitive focus. Continuous communication might be another way to put that. How would you describe that? I would describe it pretty much the same way you did, and that's constant communication. One of the things that I've seen often is there's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of meetings, a lot of discussion right up front in those early days. Everybody shows up for the project meetings. They're all involved during the planning stage. They're all throwing in their two cents about what should happen. Then once the work begins, people just kind of disappear off into their own little universes. And when you lose that constant contact, you start to lose focus. People are no longer pointed in the same direction. It would be akin to having a football team where you've got 11 guys on the field all going a different direction for a different play. They're very concerned with the one thing that they're doing, but they have no idea what anybody else is up to. If you're not in constant contact, if you're not having those daily meetings, and there could be multiple groups of these meetings, depend upon what you're doing, but let's just consider one. You've got an engineering team, and let's say you've got 10 engineers working on components of the project. Every morning, you're going to get together with all 10 of those people, and you're going to do a quick around the room so everyone tells you what they're doing what they're going to do, and what problems they've had. And you need to do that every day. If you don't do that every day, you soon lose track. And everyone within that team loses track of what else is going on. And it's absolutely critical that we all have the same vision and the same image of where we're trying to get. Yeah, that's consistent with my experience that projects don't slip into a failure spiral only at specific points in time or because one deadline or milestone gets missed on a specific day. Failure starts at an hour by hour and a day by day basis. It starts with a little spark, turns into an ember, and then a flame, and then it's a raging inferno of failure. If you're waiting for a monthly project status meeting in the hopes of addressing problems, your chance of success goes way down. It's a day in and day out slog that requires continuous communication, as you said. Yeah, we've talked about this quite a bit, Glenn, and I know that uh, I think in our last session, 
it feels like we got into this a bit because I think that some of the experiences that you've had reflect that infrequent communication where uh, the image that you painted for me was that you would have these project meetings maybe weekly or every other week. And that's fine for certain members of, of the project team. But you have to focus on those people that are right down on the bare metal. And that's the people that are doing the, the work day to day. And they have got to be in constant communication. And anything that comes up that is an impediment to forward progress needs to be escalated immediately. So that would imply that you're going to have these daily sessions where the people that are actually turning the wrenches, so to speak, are saying, I've got a problem here. You don't wait a week for a project status group meeting to bring that up. You deal with it right on the spot. And that's the way you stay ahead of problems and the way you avoid that description of starting the wildfire that you just gave us. As we've said in several cases, 100 ways to fail, three to succeed. And we would add it's different for every project. So you don't know how you're going to fail until you're in the midst of it and looking at it on a day-to-day continuous basis. Correct. Does this mean you're assuming a posture of defense all the time against failure? Well, that's an interesting way to put it, but I, I actually think that's a good approach. Back when I was taking flying lessons, my first primary instructor used to whack me on the top of the head with a rolled up map and say, the best way to to learn to do this, the safest way is to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. What you're offering there is this assumption that I'd better think about all the things that can go wrong before they do. If they don't go wrong, no harm, no foul. If they do go wrong, I'm ready for it. And this is the same approach that we're talking about here. If you're constantly looking ahead and thinking about the things that could cause problems, thinking about the way that this project could go off the rails, and that could be something as simple as, have I planned for people on this team being sick? Have I got any contingency here in case one of my engineers suddenly has to take off because uh, he has a death in the family and he has to fly across the country? If none of that has been done, if you have not prepared for the worst, you're going to have a problem. What you do then is you've got all of these risks identified and you have some sort of mitigation strategy in place, and then you hope it doesn't happen. But if it does, you're ready for it. So that's a good segue to the next subject, which is flexibility and the agile methodology. How important is it to adjust your plans regularly? Well, this is a good topic for us to get into, and we're trying to concentrate on IT projects, given that that's our area of experience and expertise. Agile methodology is a software development process that has seen tremendous acceptance in the industry. And the reason is it it does a couple of things that makes life easier for the engineering staff, and it also increases the possibility of success. And one of the things it does is it breaks components into very small bites, things that you can comprehend and consume and work on. And the second thing it does is it allows what you're saying, flexibility. You're, you're able to move and change and adjust and adapt based on what happens. I think it is important to know a couple of things. One, not everybody knows what this is. And I've heard a lot of comments from different people in my work experience who seem to have an incorrect assumption about what Agile really means. And two, they seem to have no clue how to implement it and how to run it. When done right, when you understand what it is and when done right, it dramatically increases your likelihood of success. But the reason it does is because of the flexibility so that you're not constrained by 
this, to be honest, arbitrary definition of what it is that defines success, because you're constantly adjusting. As things change, you react. Agile is one of four popular software development methodologies that are out there, but it seems to be the most adaptable to project work in terms of succeeding with what it is that you've defined you want to do. From a project's perspective, I think whatever method a team chooses, it's really important for everyone on the team to know what it is and how it ought to work. We went through in relative detail how agile development processes should work in the past. And my experience is that many groups say they're following an agile methodology, but are actually faking it. These methods work, but they also have rules and ceremonies and roles that exist for a reason. And if you don't see it and you're on the project team, you've probably got individuals, most with good intentions, just trying to put their head down and work. But on these projects that require coordination and cooperation, that just leads to wasted effort and rework. In most cases, you have people actually working against each other without knowing it, or they end up with dead ends of features of functionality that can never actually work. It happens all the time from my experience. In one of our earlier discussions, we were talking about return to office and some of the problems with that. And I kept pounding on the table and saying, the way you make that work is that you have strong managers that can differentiate between people who are successful at remote work and people who are not. And I have to say the same thing applies here. You have to have leadership that understands how agile works. And they have to enforce some parameters around that about how you do the work. And when when that happens, when you've got that leadership that is saying, here's how we're going to play the game. Here are the rules. This is where we flex. This is where we don't. This is where you commit. This is where you guess. If you've got leadership that understands the process and implements that in a clear and concise and consistent format, it succeeds. What it does do is it takes a lot of the components that we've talked about in terms of the process of coming up with an idea and planning for it and executing on it. And it uses those same sorts of, how do I want to put this? Those same sorts of arenas, but they're always flexible. They're they're changeable based on circumstance. One of the things that is most dramatic about Agile is that it kind of does away with what we like to think of as the project plan. Good old Microsoft project puts everything in a box, creates all these timelines and assigns all these names to these tasks along with dates. That goes away in Agile because you're just constantly reacting to what you're currently working on and what you're going to work on next. And you're constantly reacting to increased knowledge about requirements or changes in requirements. So you're very flexible. That's why it's called Agile. You're able to bounce around and react to things. What it does do is eliminate this idea that here are the 10 things that have to be done by 1231. And it says, here's a list of things. What can we get done by 1231? And then you start on that list and you're constantly flexing based on what gets done early, what takes longer because it's more complex than we all thought, those sorts of things. If it does nothing else, it helps eliminate the stigma of, oh, we failed because it's constantly shifting and changing and absorbing things and removing things and reacting. As knowledge increases and as skill increases within a team, everything is kind of flexible and in motion. My daughter is currently taking one of our dogs through this agility training. It's the same thing. They take these dogs and they run them through these obstacle courses and teach them how to react to things that they didn't necessarily expect and things they haven't seen before. 
And that's, to me, analogous to what we're trying to do with an agile development process. We continually move ahead. We're continually reacting. We're continually learning. We're continually refining. But what it really does is, in the end, it helps eliminate this concept of, oh, we have failed because we've got this fixed set of things and this fixed timeline and this fixed budget, and there's no room for any consideration of what changes along the way. I think it's an important point, too, that you made, that leaders need to keep reinforcing the framework and the agile methodology. I've certainly seen leaders do the opposite by rewarding someone who's ignoring the process and just coding. But if you stick to the program, like you said, it does work. This is related to the next point, which is the importance of interpersonal relationships, especially with the project manager. How would you describe that? From my experience, one of the key skills of a project manager is the ability to talk to people, the ability to connect with people, the ability to understand perspectives that people have, the ability to deal with differing personalities. Because as we know, particularly when you get into a lot of technical fields, engineers are are by their nature a very unique group of folks. They tend to think a little differently about work than those of us who are not engineers. And take my word for it, this is a true statement. I'm not saying that they're abnormal or weird or anything like that, but a good engineer thinks in terms that are a little different than your standard person on the street. So you've got to be able to talk to them in terms that they will respond to. You've got to understand when they're not telling you everything you need to know. You've got to be comfortable with pressing for more and more and more information. I've worked for a number of people who I consider absolutely brilliant and highly skilled. And in almost every case, when they describe something to me, they never told me everything. For some reason, (laughs) there is this assumption that Well, that's just common knowledge. Everybody knows that. They don't even mention it. So you have a tendency in a lot of these conversations and in meetings to only get maybe 80% of the facts. And a good project manager has to be able to kind of press back on that individual enough times that they're convinced, okay, this person has told me everything there is to know, or keep pushing back and saying, so I don't get that. I don't quite understand that. Can you explain that in different words? Tell me what you just said, but use different words to say it. That's not something that is, I think, an innate ability of a lot of people because it puts you in this sort of uncomfortable position of demonstrating that you're not quite up to speed. So you've got to be, as a good project manager, willing to admit, hey, I don't get it. Tell me again. When you do that, you start to make a connection with these folks. Both of you begin to understand what it takes to communicate. And you can apply this across the board. So when you're talking to specific engineers, and I use my 10 engineers on a team standard all the time, but you're going to have 10 different personalities. You're going to have 10 different skill sets. You're going to have 10 different kinds of people that you're going to have to deal with, but you've got to be able to communicate with each and every one of them. That's one direction. The other direction is you've got to be able to communicate up the chain as well. As a project manager, you're going to be reporting to maybe a project office, You may be reporting to a VP that's running the project, someone that's in more of a position of authority, and you have to be equally comfortable going to them with both good news and bad news. It's all about communication. The projects that I've been on that have succeeded have had people in place that were able to do this. I've learned to do it. I think I'm pretty successful in a lot of my projects because I can communicate with everybody that I work with, regardless of their role, position, authority 
or where I fit in the pecking order. But I've also seen a lot of projects that either falter or fail because you've got inexperienced folks that are maybe a little less confident, that aren't willing to push. When I first started learning to ski, I was always embarrassed to ski under the lift because it kept falling over. <laughs> and it occurred to me that I'm only ever going to learn to ski when I stop worrying about what other people think and just concentrate on the task at hand. You can apply that same principle as a project manager by only worrying about where it is you're trying to get to. What are you trying to accomplish and not worry so much about how people see you? Show that you don't have the knowledge that you need. Ask the questions to gain that knowledge. You'll improve your, your base skill levels along the way, but you'll also have a higher success rate simply by asking. Then the other side of this, the last thing I would say is that it's often the case that you have multiple teams working on a project, and often those teams don't know one another. They don't have any relationship, and yet they're both critical to the completion of this, and you're sort of the intermediary between those two teams. I've been in circumstances where there were competitive disagreements across teams, where one team thought they were smarter or better or more important or whatever than the other. And there was a tremendous amount of friction between these two. And you've got to be able to be that intermediary between them and somehow let everybody make nice. It can be done. And it's not a formula. I can't say do A, B, and C. It's a matter of communication, of getting people to talk to one another, of finding common ground, of compromising, of agreeing that maybe we neither get everything we want, but we, we both gain something. I know I would rather have a project manager on one of my projects who I know can interact, can push, can mediate communication between developers, managers, leaders, product marketing people, technical product people, than one that knows how to make a kick-ass PowerPoint. In fact, uh, yeah. I find really great PowerPoints suspicious because I know how long they take. And I know once they're done and distributed, they just sort of fade away and there's no actual progress made. I'm afraid that a project manager that interacts only through email and bi-weekly or monthly status updates or PowerPoint, this lowers the chances of success. Well, a couple of thoughts about that. One is I agree with everything you just said. I do think that there are times when PowerPoint or any other kind of presentation are appropriate, and it might be appropriate for a PM to use those tools. I've personally used them a number of times, but typically, if I'm trying to explain something perhaps up the reporting ladder. I use a PowerPoint presentation to kind of summarize things, but there's a lot of talk that goes on top of that. So maybe I show them some images, flowcharts or whatever, and, and then I fill in the blank. The other thing that's important to note is that if we start moving more toward the agile methodology, our classic old project plan kind of no longer exists. It's not that the intent is not there. It's that you may not need Microsoft Project to define all of the things that have to happen because you're kind of constantly flexing. Other ways to represent what's going on would be appropriate. It's also worth noting that project managers look both ways. Day to day, you have to be watching the project teams, the ones that are doing the work. And on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, however it's established, you're reporting up the chain to overhead ultimately to the sponsor and whoever else is letting you do this work. And you got to, got to keep them apprised of what's going on. And that's just routine sorts of things. This is not the, oh my gosh, we got to get the project sponsor because we're in trouble. This is just, okay, here's where we are this week. This is what's going on. Here are problems. 
we made excellent progress here. We're a little behind over here, that sort of thing. So the project manager is talking to everyone. The project manager is deeply involved in the specific details of the work that's being done, not necessarily knowing what the coding is. You don't need to know what language they're coding in necessarily, but you've got to know enough specifics about who's doing what to keep track of all of the balls that you're juggling. Okay, so you're actively looking for signs of failure. You're addressing problems quickly. But despite all that, things start to go off the rails. How do you think about project turnaround versus project reset versus failed? That's a difficult question to answer, Glenn, because there are a thousand different variations of what you just described. So let's try and break it down maybe into categories. I'll start with the easy. And that is that suddenly we realize that there is a component of this project and we'll say there's a program that needs to be developed from scratch. So there's a new functionality that we're trying to create and the code has to be created from thin air because no such functionality exists. And as the engineering staff starts working on this, let's say they realize the complexity is far greater than what they had originally thought. Within Agile, this is less of a problem because what that means is, all right, we've now gotten into the deep technical definition of this work. And we realize, one, it's going to be much more invasive than we had originally thought. Two, it's going to affect interactions with other teams and other components of the software. Three, it's going to require perhaps some hardware that we don't possess. Maybe we've got to buy some new servers. Regardless of what's going on, this is a bigger piece of work than we thought. The response to that is to not assume this is a failure because it's not. This is a flex, and this is what Agile is all about. All right, so I've got a list of things that we're planning to get through in this particular project, and one of them has now suddenly grown. There's a few things that need to happen. Number one, you need to confirm that this is absolutely critical to have at this point. could be critical to have, but we don't need it for six months. It could be, this is a deal breaker if we don't get this in this particular release. Everything else is meaningless. It could be, we can scale this way back and only do part of the functionality. There's kind of this continuum of variation that, that will determine how much work needs to happen. If you got to do it, something else has to give. That's the point of Agile. Then you look at the next things that this engineer was going to do or this team was going to do, and you determine how it's going to impact that. I wouldn't call it a reset. I certainly wouldn't call it a failure. This is a flex within Agile that lets you decide, okay, new information, more complete information. This affects the timeline. What do we do? Conversations are had up the chain. Conversations are had within the staff and a decision is made. This may be the case where you go to the sponsor and explain all this and the sponsor says, got to have that here are these other two things on the list, bump those out into the next project. So you simply adjust your plan accordingly. Another more serious way that this can work out is that you proceed down this path until you're very near completion, and then some tragedy unfolds and you realize we can't do this. And you could maybe not do it because there is an absolute showstopper of an error that it creates with some other functionality in the system. Something more dramatic could happen, like the engineer that was working on it gets hit by a bus and you no longer have the technical staff to work on it. The third thing that could happen is that there is suddenly a new set of criteria issued from the CEO that says, oh my gosh, we've got this opportunity or we've got this requirement. 
you have to stop working on this part and go work on this other thing that I'm going to define. And I know you've seen all of these scenarios happen, but you don't have to define this as a failure. This is more of a reaction. So this is about agile. This is saying we have to shift our focus. We have to redirect resources. We have to change what we're working on. We have to move stuff to future releases or cancel it. And then it becomes a definition. I've said before in these conversations that failure is in the eye of the beholder. So if I make a list and it's got all these items on them and I don't get them done, I can say we failed. Or I can say we completed 85% of the stuff that we set out to do. We're going to have to bump these others to the next project. So there are ways that you can deal with this that are not showstoppers and are not dramatic, but it all depends on what do I have to have? What must I complete? What have we promised or contractually obligated ourselves to the client for? What things are going to put us out of business if we don't do it? And as you go up that chain of disaster and you get further and further into it, it's rather easy to decide what must happen. What is the right choice? Probably less easy to decide how do you find this but I think that project failures, and I'll remind you of one of the very first things you said in our first episode on this is the real failures are those things where you've got a huge project that's been out of control for two years, <laughs> is in the red millions of dollars, and is never going to be finished. But what we're talking about, the specific thing that you brought up, is more specific tasks that do not fall into the anticipated timeline quite the way we had originally thought. And how, as an organization, we react to that. So we should recognize everything you just said is not easy. But what's the point of monitoring and controlling if you're not pointing out uncomfortable issues? And the one thing I'd add to your list are people problems. There are just some people that aren't, for whatever reason, right for the project. Either they're lazy, incompetent, don't have the right skills, can't get along with certain people. Those are really tough calls to make, but you got to make them. You're right. And all of those things fall into the you got to have good management in place category because that's stuff that we should be able to know ahead of time. But there's always the unexpected. So again, if you prepare for the worst and then hope for the best, sometimes it turns out. But if you've prepared for the worst, that means that you've taken some of this into account, that you've got difficult personalities to work with, and that's going to affect to some degree what things am I going to assign to them? And how closely am I going to monitor them day to day and make sure that they're getting done with what they are supposed to get done with? And as soon as they fall behind, not a week later, but as soon as they fall behind, the alarms go off. And when the alarms go off, something is done. And it's not, well, let's just talk about it. It's, we pull this person off. They're not doing the job. We're going to have to get somebody else. Or that particular task is going to have to roll into a, a future project because they're never going to get it finished. Then you get into that same category we just discussed, and can you do that? Is it critical for what we're trying to do bigger picture? Can we defer it? Is there someone else that can pick this up? Those are things that are absolute real issues that happen day to day in every company on every project. Trying to determine how to react is going to be something that's done in the moment based on all those variables. And as you said just a minute ago, none of this is easy. That's why project management is hard. And that's why often this stuff just gets pushed to the side. And then it piles up in the end, the thing falls flat on his face because you didn't address these issues when they arose. The PM should be ultimately responsible for raising the flag the instant something comes up. 
And then the PM is also going to have to follow up and make sure that the people that should react to that flag raising do. That's why this is a hard job, because you've got to have enough confidence that you can go to perhaps the person you report to or even higher and say, look, if you don't do something, bad things are going to happen. This goes back to my comment some time ago where if you're not willing to get fired, you're probably not doing your job. So you have to be willing to say the hard things and not worry what the reaction is going to be. If you get fired, you get fired. But if you don't tell the people that need to know what's going on, you're never going to succeed. You will inevitably come up against something where the bottom falls out, and ultimately it's going to be your responsibility anyway. Deal with it when it comes up. When it's a smaller issue, typically is a better solution. And I would put that burden on everyone on the project team. Obviously, the project manager has a central role in that. It is absolutely incumbent upon everyone on the team to face facts, look at the truth, and address problems. I 100% agree with what you just said. I've been, as I pointed out, a manager of technical teams. And one of the things that I didn't expect I demanded out of the folks that were on my team is, tell me when there's a problem. Don't wait until next week. I need to know about it before anyone else, because I don't want to be sitting in a meeting and someone asks me about this issue and I have no clue. So tell me the second there's a problem. Tell me the second there's a concern. Tell me the second something is going to be late. Tell me the second you've discovered, wow, this is much more complex than I thought. So it's constantly, constantly reinforcing that need from everyone. And it's not just to the PM. It's anyone who's reporting to someone should know that when there's a problem, they go to their boss and they say, this is an issue. We need to do something about it. And I know you'd agree that if the boss suddenly blames the person who raises the issue or suddenly puts it on them to solve it themselves, that's the opposite of face facts and deal with truth. Correct. Kill the messenger. But mm -hmm. unfortunately, that doesn't solve the problem. And it will be worse if you pretend like nothing's happening and you stick your head in the sand and then the whole thing mm -hmm. blows up. And then your boss says, why didn't you tell me about this? And your response is either going to be, I didn't know in which case you're incompetent, or I didn't think you needed to know, in which case you're incompetent. There's no good explanation for not pushing bad news uphill. Now, I understand what you and I are talking about is a perfect world where this is the way we should behave. It doesn't necessarily mean that we do. This is the way we'd like to think we would always behave. It doesn't necessarily mean we always will. But it is essential if people are serious about getting a project done. If people are serious about getting their own work done, they've got to be very open and transparent. And this comes down to individual personalities. Some folks would come to me and complain about stuff that I didn't want to hear because it had nothing to do with anything. Other people would never come to me and tell me anything, and I wouldn't find out about it until I was caught off guard somehow, or there's a system failure. It's a continuum. And all we can do is define the best and correct way to behave and hope that everybody plays by those rules. Or you find creative ways to blame others for mistakes. That's always a good strategy. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a cultivated skill, I guess. Well, Denny, how would you summarize this list? If you had to break it down into a list that you could put into a PowerPoint, what would you say? As I was contemplating this week, how to summarize all of the thoughts and conversations we've had, I was also watching a football game and I thought, <laughs> You know, when I look at the NFL, you've got 32 teams that all have the same exact project plan at the beginning of the season, and they've all done the exact same thing to get ready for that first game. 
but starting with the first snap in the first game, things start to go wrong. There are key points that apply not only to what we're discussing, which is every project you're ever going to be working on, but that can be applied to the way you would run a professional sports team. And I, I think I've got seven points that I listed that to me make sense about how to have a project succeed. The first, and this is stuff that we've talked about many times, is that you've, you've got to have excellent leadership. If you've got a bad leader, if you've got a bad CEO or a bad VP or a bad team leader or a bad project man, things are going to be much more difficult. Excellent coaching and leadership. And leadership and coaching should be the same thing. It should be that the people that are reporting to you are constantly hearing from you about the things they do right, the things they do wrong, how they can do better. If you're not doing that, you shouldn't be in that position. But that is absolutely the first and most important thing. And this is one of those interpersonal communication things. Second thing that is critical for every project or every football team is that you have to have supreme individual talent. On my engineering teams, I've got to have first-rate engineers, not just people that can code, but people that can think, people that can innovate and invent, people that know how to copy when it's appropriate, people who know what they're doing. That's critical. So you got to have good leadership and you got to have excellent talent being led by them. The third component of this is that that talent has got to have a focus that supports, number one, the team, and themselves, number two. So if you've got all of these folks that are working on your engineering staff and their only concern is tooting their own horn and making sure that they are the most important, that they're the one that gets all the attention, they're not working as a team. If you've got a team that actually functions correctly, you've got your principal engineers helping your seniors and your entry level and coaching them and teaching them and helping them solve problems, helping them design things. You've got to have that capability within your organization. The fourth thing, and this may actually be one of the more important aspects, is you have to have a shared vision of what it is that you're trying to do. If you only know one thing, and that is the lines of code that you're going to insert, but you have no clue how this fits into the bigger picture, and you have no idea what the intention of this project is, you're not going to be nearly as successful because you're not part of the bigger plan. Fifth thing I note, we talked about a lot today, and that's flexibility. You got to change. You got to change the strategy. Let's look at the football games again. Week by week, the strategy has to adjust depending upon, in this case, the team you're facing. In our case, in IT, the strategy has to change based on the things that you've already done the things that you're going to do, the problems that you have discovered, or the unexpected successes that you've achieved. So your list that you're going to work from is going to shift week by week. Wow, this was way easier than I thought. I said it would take me four weeks. It took me one. I've now got this extra capacity. Or the reverse. Wow, this is much more complicated than I But if you're not able to flex, you're not likely to succeed. The sixth item on my list is something that it's somewhat vague but it's a critical part of succeeding, and that is continuous improvement. You've got to get better every time. Easiest example of this would be on day one of the execution, we have a stand-up, and everyone on my engineering team shows up, and we all stand around the coffee pot, and they tell me what they did today, what they're going to do tomorrow, and what's in their way. And every day, they get better at doing this, because every day they learn the thing that's important to point out, 
the way that you say it, the kinds of things that you ask help for, the sorts of things that you identify as potential problems. Then the other continuous improvement part is that you're going to help the rest of your team. You're going to make sure that people who are falling behind, maybe because of technical lack of skill, you're going to help them do that. You're constantly learning. You're constantly learning more about your craft. And that applies to whether you're an engineer writing code, whether you're the manager of that team of engineers, whether you're the project manager. No matter who you are, you need to be getting better every day. You need to be expanding your skill set. Then the last thing is something that this actually kind of comes at the very beginning and it flows through the entire project. And that is that you've got to respond to the unexpected. So you up front, you create a risk assessment and you identify all the things that you kind of know. But on any given day, something's going to happen that you didn't expect. Something will go wrong that you did not anticipate. You will discover that there's something that you didn't know could go wrong. This is the old known unknowns and unknown unknowns that Rumsfeld used to talk about when he was Secretary of Defense. That sort of thing. In football, you plan for things like injury. Got to have somebody waiting in the wings so when that left guard tears his knee, you got somebody else to put in. And for our projects, you've got to be in the same mode. You've got to be prepared for the unexpected. So you have to anticipate that things are going to go wrong and at least have a plan for how you're going to deal with that. And the plan could be, no problem, I got an extra team member here that can do the work, or it could be, that's no problem. The project point that this injured player was working on, it, we can replace that guy with somebody else, and the project part he's working on is going to get deferred. You juggle some priorities. So let me run through those again real quick. Excellent coaching and leadership, supreme individual talent. Talent supports the team first and the individual second a shared vision of what you're trying to do, flexibility, continuous improvement, and responding to the unexpected. If those are the principles that you adhere to throughout, whatever methodology you use becomes somewhat less important because you've covered all the bases. Wow, that's a really succinct and powerful list, not because it simply addresses projects, but it addresses an entire business. If you want to make a business successful, you could use that same list and it sets the tone for how to make the business successful, not only just individual projects. That's a good way to look at it. It points to the things that are that are important and it doesn't get hung up in a lot of specific details, methodology, mm -hmm. positions or anything. You focus on what it is you're trying to accomplish. It's what matters. That should be a part of an executive team approach to the entire business. Well, now that you say that, I, I think I agree. I, I had just been thinking about this, trying to come up with some some ways for us to summarize what we've been talking, to put it into a list that people could tack on their wall in their office or their cubicle and say, okay, are all these things being adhered to? Is this the approach we're taking? What's missing? What have we not done? The teams that succeed, whether it's an IT project team or a football team, are dealing with all of this stuff on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. They've thought about it ahead of time. They have a contingency plan. Frankly, it works. Yeah. Well, Danny, I don't think we can top that. I think that's a great way to end this series. And I think we came to the conclusion the way you make projects succeed is the same way you make the business succeed. As always, I appreciate your perspective and your insights. Thank you, Danny. Yeah, my pleasure. I think we've torn this topic pretty much to shreds. Hopefully people will find this helpful.